0: This morning, and the reason I, I picked this one is because Proverbs mentions that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So we've looked at that a little bit. Well, the inverse of the beginning of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord, is the fear of man, which is the beginning of foolishness. So we're going to start by looking at what Proverbs says and the Scriptures say about the fear of man. So Proverbs 29:25 is where we're going to be. And, and one way to think of a proverb is, yes, it is this. It's a short, compact, very terse statement that even though it is short and compact, it packs in a lot of truth. And there's there's a lot of wisdom that we're going to glean from there. So the way I, I envision a proverb, have you ever seen the, the original Mary Poppins that Disney put out? Um, when Mary Poppins comes in, she has this, this small little bag with her as she's going to set up her room. And then she starts to open her bag and she pulls out a lamp and a nightstand and a bed from that bag and the kids are just kind of awestruck at this, this little bag from Mary Poppins somehow holds all of these things in there, and they wonder how she does it, and there's this mystery about Mary Poppins and, and the magic surrounding her. Well, it might not help you in thinking about it, but that's how I think about a proverb. Proverbs is like Mary Poppins' bag, although it's, it, it seems small and short and compact, and it doesn't can't hold much. You, you start to dig into it, and you pull out more and more concepts and themes and ideas and wisdom in them. So that's what we're going to look at in Proverbs 29, 25. So I'm going to read the proverb and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to dig into it. So Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that by your spirit, you would give us insight and understanding and that in gaining insight and understanding, we might grow in wisdom. And in growing in wisdom, we might be able to better see and perceive and understand the follies and traps and snares that are on this walk that we go on in this world. So Lord, that we could walk faithfully, trusting in you and be kept safe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So fear is obviously a common theme in Proverbs. The Fear of the Lord, now the fear of man, there's other fears mentioned. But fear is also a very common and a very powerful emotion that we experience. For example, I would say that we all probably could list off some fear that we have that gives us a bit of anxiety, a bit of discomfort, and it motivates us to avoid certain situations or to practice some avoidance tactics if we're in a certain situation. If you've ever been in a tall building and you're standing near a balcony and your, your hands start to sweat and get clammy, as you think about walking close to that edge, and you can't bring yourself even to look over the edge, or if you do, you feel a sense of kind of uh, you know imbalance and thrown off. You have a fear of heights, or when you were in school and you had to do an assignment where you had to speak in front of all your classmates, and the night before that speech you tossed and turned, you had you had nightmares about saying the wrong thing, or, or you know showing up with you know no clothes on, or something odd that would never happen. You are familiar with a fear of. Public speaking. Uh, for example, when I went to college, I had to take—I uh, had to get a communications credit. So I signed up for what I thought was the only communications class. It was public speaking. So I went to the class first day, and it's—it's it's usually syllabus day. They just go over the syllabus. I thought, you know, no harm, first day. Well, I get in the class, and it's one of the largest classrooms in the in the college. It's an auditorium, so there's you know there's 60, 70, 80 students there. So I was immediately filled with anxiety. Then the teacher starts to go over the syllabus and lists. One public speaking assignment after another. Four different times I'd have to get up and and speak in front of all these strangers and give a speech. And so I did what any reasonable person would do. I left the class early, went to the registrar's office, and dropped the class and took whatever other course I could to meet that communications credit. Well, since dropping that class and and going into pastoral ministry, I've learned that the Lord has a sense of humor. (laughs) Well, there's other fears. Have you ever started to feel like you were getting sick? Maybe just a little thought of a symptom was, was coming on. And you said, you know what, I, I need to go to the only source that's reliable. I need to go to Google and find out what's wrong with me. I need to go to WebMD and discover the serious illness that is in, inflicting me. And you, you start to you know, search what you believe your symptoms are, and you realize that you either have the common cold or a severe life-threatening case of tuberculosis. And you're convinced that it's tuberculosis well, you have a fear of getting seriously ill. The list of possible fears is a very long one. Some of them are understandable, and and some of them are are very humorous and and not very understandable. But we're going to look at a fear that is not often listed on the, the phobia list, but it is one that is relevant and prevalent in all of our lives. And it is as spiritually dangerous as it is subtle and difficult to detect. So the first part of our proverb says that The fear of man lays a snare. Or some of your translation might say, the fear of man lays a trap. So a snare or trap is used in hunting animals. That's the imagery he's giving us here. And an effective snare or trap has two qualities about it. It's disguised, which means it's, it's hidden very well, and it is very lethal or deadly. It's very effective at catching and keeping or killing its prey. So that's how the scriptures want us to view and envision the fear of man. And so with that, since the fear of man is so easily disguised and yet so spiritually dangerous, we need God's wisdom to understand what this fear is and his remedy for it. So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. And so to demonstrate how dangerous and deadly this trap of the fear of man is, I wanna first show you that this is a prominent theme in scripture. So if you were to look, if you were to go, to a concordance or a search engine for the Bible, and you were to type in the exact phrase fear of man, you would not get many hits. But if you were to read your Bible with a view to finding examples and instances and cases of the fear of man, you would have ample material, more than we can cover right now. So I'm just gonna highlight a few of the most prominent examples of the fear of man in scripture, kind of in order. In Genesis 12, Abraham, kind of the father of the faith, has been just given this great, grand promise from God. And part of it includes a promise of protection. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless you. And those who bless you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Implied in that is, Lord, or Abraham, I am the Lord your God who is your shield and your protection. So you think he is filled with confidence. He can face and stand before anyone. Well, it's not true. He journeys into Egypt shortly after getting that promise. And he's now in mighty Pharaoh's territory the one with a great reputation. He's hes kind of the, the big guy on the block. And he is overcome by a fear of man, a fear of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So much so that he tells his wife, if you meet anyone, tell them you're my sister, not my wife. Now, I don't know how that went over, but apparently she went along with it. And she did not only go along with it once. And Abraham was not only overcome with this fear once, He was overcome with it on multiple occasions. Genesis 20 gives us another account. And like father, like son, his son does the very same thing in Genesis 26. It is a trap that keeps on trapping him. Another example, of the fear of man. Exodus 32. Moses is on the mountain beholding the glory of the Lord, speaking to him face to face as a friend speaks to another friend. He's speaking to the God who has just done great signs and wonders to deliver them out of bondage in Egypt over that mighty Pharaoh, that Abraham coward, In front of. And while Moses is up there, Aaron is down at the base of the mountain. And Aaron's in charge of overseeing the people. And Moses has been gone a little bit of time. And so the people are getting restless. They're getting concerned. And they want to do something while they're sitting around doing nothing. So they come to Aaron and they say, make for us idols so that we can have a feast and a celebration. So public opinion has swayed and changed, and now Aaron is faced with leading a people that wants him to do something he knows he ought not to do. And instead of Aaron saying to them, are you guys crazy? That God up on that mountain who just delivered us, explicitly just told us, you shall not make any graven images or bow down and worship them. He does not say that. Instead he says, I think that's a wonderful idea. Let's get some gold. Let's throw it in the fire. And I I know the perfect thing to make. He caved under the pressure of public opinion and gave the people what they wanted. Jumping ahead to the New Testament, there's strong examples of the fear of man, especially in the crowds that witnessed the works and words of Jesus. They saw with their own eyes what he had done, the testimony of who he was, and yet they refused to follow him as disciples. Why? John 12, 42 and 43 explains why they didn't. It says this, Many, even of the authorities... Believed in Jesus. So there was a type of faith they had. They couldn't deny the works and the words. But for fear of the Pharisees, the leading elite religious class of the day, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise that comes from man more than the praise that comes from God. In other words, facts, evidence, proof, all pointed to Believe in Jesus, follow him. But they cared so much about what the Pharisees thought. They thought so much about what power the Pharisees had that they would rather disregard Jesus than become his disciples. Well, probably the most well-known example of how the fear of man can trap us and lead us into compromise is the disciple Peter. You know the story well. Within the span of less than 24 hours, Peter goes from boldly telling Jesus to his face, even though Jesus said the opposite, that I will die before I deny you. And then in that 24 hour span, he is standing in the dark before a lowly servant girl who recognizes him and says, no, you you were with him. I recognize you. And he cowers in fear and swears that he never even knew Jesus. Proverbs warns us of the folly, the fear of man, because as scripture demonstrates, it is a prevalent and deadly trap that many have fallen into. So now that we've seen the theme, now I want to define what it is. So with these illustrations and examples of the fear of man, what, what is the fear of man? Well, in each of these examples, there are a couple of recurring patterns in them. In each of these examples, there were instances of Compromise with each of the individuals and not the good kind of compromise, not the, you know, you're you're arguing with a sibling or a friend or a spouse and and you realize, yep, I got to let this go and we'll just meet in the middle. This was not the good kind of compromise. They each knew what they ought to do. They each knew what was true and what was right, but they compromised and did the opposite. So that's one recurring pattern. Another one is this. In each of these examples, the underlying motivation was what would others think of me and what could others do to me with the power that they have over me? So they were motivated by this this nagging, hunting question, what would others think of me or what could others do to me if I stand on my convictions and don't compromise them? And then a third recurring theme. In each of these examples, the goal of their actions was either to gain the approval of others or at least avoid their disapproval. We wanted to kind of stay in our status and standing in their eyes or, or grow in it. And so, putting that all together, the fear of man is caring so much about what others think about you or what others could do to you that you're willing to compromise your convictions to gain their approval or avoid their disapproval. I say that again. The fear of man is being so overwhelmed with what others think about you, caring so much about what others think about you or could do to you, that you're willing to compromise your convictions to gain their approval or avoid. Their disapproval. In other words, the fear of man is being ruled more by what others think about you than what God thinks about you. To borrow a phrase from a wonderful book on the subject, when people are big and God is small, that's when we've fallen into the trap of the fear of man. And the reason it's a well disguised and hard to detect trap is because it's often hidden under different names and it's often hidden under different types of actions that we might not associate with it. So the fear of man is a good trap because it has many aliases and disguises. And if I mention them, I bet you would recognize some of them, perhaps in your own life. So one of the aliases or disguises of the fear of man is peer pressure. So we yield to the practices of others or we join in the activities of others, even ones that go against our convictions or we have no concern about or don't really care about, but we just go with them, Because we want to fit in. We want to be accepted because there's a group of people whose opinion we highly value and we need to get their good opinion of us. So peer pressure is one. Another alias of the fear of man is people-pleasing. So very similar to peer pressure but slightly different. People-pleasing. Now, it's one thing to be considerate of others, right? That's a commendable quality. Paul says even consider others more significant than yourself. But... It's another thing entirely to be ruled by others' expectations of you. It's another thing to be governed by a need for everyone to be happy, content. Another thing to be ruled by needing everyone to think well of you or to think you've done well. That's people-pleasing. And here's where it falls into a trap. What happens when what would please the Lord and what others' expectations are, what would please them, are in conflict? When you're in the throes of people pleasing, you find yourself in that situation caught in a very sticky trap. So people pleasing is another one. The fear of man is also often the motive underneath lying and flattery. So Proverbs 26, 28 puts lying and flattery together. It says this: Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So lying is when we when we embellish by expanding, you we know, embellish, expand, or distort the truth in, a- in any way. And flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. And so have you ever shrunken or expanded the truth when talking with someone because you knew if you did, you would look better in their eyes or look not so bad in their eyes? Or have you ever given someone praise or positive feedback, not because you believed it, but because you knew they would like to hear it? And then in liking to hear it, they would think, well... Of you, and I know it's, it's quite a conundrum that many people have. When someone asks you, "What did you think of my cooking?" You know, wisdom would dictate that you you're probably supposed to say something nice. But here's where it can fall into a snare. If you if you say, "This is the best meal I've ever had," what happens when you didn't really like it? And now every time you go to that house to eat, they only serve <laughs> that meal. Okay? Or someone gives you a gift, and you're like, "It is the best gift I have ever received. You know, it's so wonderful. You're such a kind person." And then every year they buy you that that pink. You know, bunny rabbit pajamas because you said one year that it was the best gift you've ever received. That's why it works ruin. In both cases, though, with lying and flattery, instead of loving people enough to tell them the truth, we fear people so much, so much that we tell them lies so that they will think highly of us. We're loving ourselves more than we're actually loving people, and we want them to love us and think highly of us. As the famous saying goes, "Oh." What a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. We fall into a trap. Another nickname for the fear of man is one-upmanship. This is an interesting one because we tend to think, if you're like me, we tend to think of the fear of man, you think that maybe it's it's unique to personality type. I I can see how the the shy, reserved, quiet type deals with this. But what about the loud, aggressive type? No, fear of man is no respecter of personality. Think about it, the battle of egos in a faculty meeting or a corporate boardroom or in a locker room is an aggressive form of the fear of man. The dread of being perceived as inferior or even just on par with one's peers can compel individuals to to do something to assert their dominance, to demonstrate that they're not an equal, they are superior to others. Here's a biblical example of this. Jesus' disciples You think that they would be so floored that they get to follow after the great teacher himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, God who took on flesh, that they would have no care in the world. They were very concerned about one thing, who of them was the greatest disciple. Why do I know that? Because on two different occasions, Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus stumbled, as it were, upon the disciples as they were having an argument of egos. And the argument was around which of them was the greatest in the kingdom. And I could spend the rest of this sermon discouraging you with more examples and aliases of the fear of man. I could mention how a fixation, often on our physical health and physical looks, can be connected to the fear of man. Or how a lack of courage in evangelism is deeply rooted in the fear of man. Or the inability to hear constructive criticism is rooted in the fear of man. Or the love of positive feedback is rooted in the fear of man. I could go on and on and on but the goal is not to discourage you. It's to equip us with wisdom. Wisdom that is able to detect deadly traps of foolishness despite their many clever disguises. Growing in wisdom, as Proverbs defines it, means that we are more and more enabled to see reality as God sees it, to see something as it really is. And in studying Proverbs, it's as if we're going to the eye doctor to receive corrective lenses so that we can see better, so that we can see all of life through the lenses of God's wisdom. If you've ever been to the eye doctor, you know kind of how that appointment goes. And I remember the first time I went to the eye doctor, I was was only 21, so I was in denial that I needed to go in the first place. And because of my fear of man, I didn't want to have to wear glasses and look silly in front of other people. But on the way to the eye doctor, I knew I needed to go because I kept missing the sign to turn to the eye doctor because I couldn't read it. It was too fuzzy in my eyes. And then I took the eye exam. And they put that big machine before you where the doctor asks, you know, which one looks better, number one or number two. And as I went through that exam, I realized I needed to be there. And this is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. Because if you've struggled with your vision fading and then you finally get the right corrective lenses, it's as if the world is in HD once again. Someone, Someone's flipped a switch and you can see and perceive and... and Everything's clear. Again, the the colors are brighter. You you don't have to sit in the front of the Presbyterian church anymore. You can sit in the back, right? That's how the wisdom of God works on us. Through wisdom, in his word, the Lord is giving us lenses. He's sharpening our corrective eyesight so that we can see the world with greater clarity and precision. We can recognize foolishness. We can see wisdom and know which way we're to go. So, so far we've seen... That the trap of the fear of man is a prominent theme in Scripture. It's a prevalent problem in our life that has many disguises and aliases. Now, I want to take a moment before we look at the remedy to ask why do we find ourselves constantly falling into this trap of the fear of man? Why do we keep going into the folly of the fear of man? One of the reasons, which we've already heard in Scripture, that we fall into the trap of the fear of man is because we often develop an unhealthy appetite for the approval and admiration of others. As Jesus said to God, they love the praise of man more than they loved the praise that comes from God. And it's a struggle because it feels so good to have a good opinion of others. And it feels so good that you want more of it. It's like an addiction. And in wanting more of it, you start to learn what will get you more of it. So you start to adjust and modify how you represent and present yourself to others, so that you can get more of it. You learn what jokes will will get a laugh, what stories will get interest, what clothes will get a look, what, what spiritual sounding language will make you look impressive. But in doing all this, we are being motivated by the audience of the many rather than the audience of one. And we've fallen into a trap. So it's an unhealthy appetite for the approval and admiration of others. But on the flip side, We tend to fall into the fear of man trap because we dread the prospect of being rejected or humiliated by others. So one author made this insight. In our current culture, every day is Halloween. Putting on a mask is a regular part of our daily ritual. The masquerade, however, is anything but festive. Underneath the masks are people who are terrified that there will be an unveiling that someone might see. In other words, there is a fear of what others would think of me if they really saw me. If I speak, what if I say the wrong thing? If I do this, what if I look silly? If I try this, what if people see that I'm not good at it? And what both of these have in common is that they indicate that we have raised the opinion and perception of others to a godlike level. In other words, we have made an idol out of people and believe that they have godlike abilities to gaze on us and expose us in ways that would harm us, or a godlike ability to fill us with what would truly and ultimately satisfy us. And so we're trapped in the fear of man because we believe that other people have the ultimate power to give and to take away, to bless or to curse. And those are powers only the Lord has. And so this is where we must turn to consider the remedy and the cure of the fear of man. As one Puritan author said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. The one fear cures the other. When the praise of man tempts you, turn your thoughts to the praiseworthiness of God. So that's what our passage does in the second half. So Proverbs 29, 25, the first half presents the problem. It presents folly to us. The fear of man lays a snare. The second half presents a solution, the wisdom. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So a wonderful example of this in scripture and the difference between these two things is the story of the 12 spies of Israel in Numbers 13 and 14. I'll, I'll summarize it for you. You don't have to turn there. So these 12 spies, they're, they're in the wilderness. They're, they're, the end of their, or their, their time has come to enter into this promised land, which God has told them about. He's, he's told them it's a wonderful land, that he's going to give it to them. And so before doing that, pick 12 people to go out and look at the land and come back and give us a report and, and see what it's like. So 10 of the spies come back and report that the land is as the Lord promised. It flows with milk and honey. And they bring back some fruit and say, "It's, it's wonderful fruit. And they're in the wilderness. So this is a great alternative to the wilderness. However, they also give this dreadful report. They say this, but the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. We are not able to go up against these people for they are stronger than we are. All the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we seem like grasshoppers to them. So the issue in their report is that they were so captivated by the fear of the people that they laid their eyes on. People were big and God was small in their eyes. And so since people were big and God was too small, there was no way they could go in there. They were captured by that fear and controlled and ruled by it. But then you have two other spies, Caleb and Joshua. And they gave this report. The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Therefore, do not fear them. You hear the difference in the reports. The difference in the report is not about the inhabitants of the land. Notice that Joshua and Caleb did not come back and say, those 10 guys, they're lying to you. The people there, are they're actually puny, tiny ants. We could step on them. They didn't give some motivational speech. Like, if we set our minds to it, we can do anything that we want. That's what my parents told us when we were kids. Let's be all that we can be together. <laughs> they didn't do that. They didn't dispute the report. They didn't try to motivate them out of self-interest or you know, kind of just a pep rally talk. Their focus and what they were trying to get the people to focus on was the Lord. Their trust was in the Lord. Their, their eyes were fixed on the bigness of the God who had delivered them. So when they looked at the land and all its inhabitants, they looked at it through the wisdom of the fear of the Lord. And then they knew, therefore, that if the Lord is with us, whom shall we fear? If the Lord is with us, who can be against us? So now the question for us is, how do we find this safety of trusting the Lord so that we're not fooled by the traps Of the fear of the man how do we grow in wisdom to see god as big and people as small well first we need to know that god alone has ultimate control and power over our lives not other people we need to first have this settled conviction in the sovereignty of god we need to know that god is the one who has ultimate control and power over our lives and it is not in the hands of any other individual And the reason I bring this up is because Proverbs is filled with verses that are meant to expand and increase and grow our view of his sovereignty over all things, including our lives. Let me just read a couple of those for you. Proverbs 16, nine. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The smallest thing you can think of at that time, is under the control of the Lord. Proverbs 19:21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that shall stand. Proverbs 21, one. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wills. In the wisdom of Proverbs, it takes the smallest thing, the lot, and one says the most powerful thing, a king, and says both of those, the extremes, the poles, they are under the purview of God's sovereignty then Proverbs 21:30 30 and 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel will prevail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Now, what is that collective wisdom telling us? It's reminding us that our lives are governed by the God who rules and overrules all things and all people. There is no maverick monarch or maverick molecule in his universe. He governs and oversees it all. We are safe because we are in the grip of an omnipotent hold from a good God. That's why in that hymn in Christ Alone, it says, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's where our safety is. The course of our day or our life or the direction of our career or our social standing is not determined by if this person approves of us or if that person rejects us, because we are under the governing care of a wise heavenly father. And this is our father's world. So Psalm 27, one, applying this wisdom says, the Lord is a stronghold of my life. He is my shelter of safety, my fortress. Of whom shall I be afraid? So we need to understand that God has ultimate control and power over our lives, not other people. And then finally, We need to know that the gaze of God is more searching and more significant than the gaze of other people. The eyes of the Lord are more searching and more significant than the eyes of other people. So there are a number of Proverbs that show us that the Lord sees and knows all things, including those secret thoughts, those secret motives, those secret intents of the heart that we think we can keep hidden from others. We think we need to keep hidden from others so that we can keep in their approval. So Proverbs 16, two, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit, or the Lord knows the spirit. Proverbs 21, two, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord knows the heart. Proverbs 24, 12. If one of you says, but we didn't know anything about this, does not the Lord who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not the Lord who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Now, the, the heart-searching, soul-seeing reality of God cuts two ways. There's, in one sense, uh, a warning here, but then there is a comfort and a blessing here. The warning is this. When we are motivated out of the fear of man to compromise our convictions to fit in or to embellish the truth to look good or to cover something up to not look bad, and we think to ourselves, You've done well for yourself. You have kept your reputation in the eyes of others. You've, you've increased or at least preserved your opinion in the eyes of others. We must always remember there is a more searching and more significant pair of eyes that is on us at all times. Others may not see through the mask or the act, but the Lord can see through it. Others may, not, others may approve of the compromise on what you knew was right and may not know that you did compromise, but the Lord knows Others may not be able to tell the difference between what we appear to be in public and what we really are in private, but the Lord knows how to sort that out. And so one says this is a call to genuineness, authenticity, to being open and real about how we are because we know that the one who ultimately knows and the the one we ultimately have to answer to already sees and is aware of all of it. But here's the other way it cuts. Here's the comfort of this. Underlying the fear of man is this hunting sense of how others would perceive us if they really saw us, if they really knew us. If they knew this or that about me, I'd be ashamed or embarrassed or exposed. Have you ever heard, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's historical, but apparently there was this person who prank called five people. And in the prank call, all he said was, when they picked up the phone was, they know what you've done, leave town now. And they hung up the phone. (laughs) Four of the people fled town that night. <laughs> and, and the irony, or the, I think the, the point behind that, the punch behind it is that it was a prank call. He didn't, he didn't know that they'd done anything, but there was a sense of what if others knew that motivated them. That kind of, some, some of that underlies uh, the fear of man. It's just, I don't want to be exposed, embarrassed, ashamed, humiliated, rejected, whatever. But the wonderful reality of the gospel is that the God who truly sees us. And knows us. He knows the deepest recesses of our soul. He knows the hidden realities of our past. He knows the fear of man that dominates our hearts. That God, who sees that, still looks upon us with overflowing compassion and abundant grace. That God did not reject us or despise us or disapprove of us. But as Jesus tells us in the story of the prodigal son, in our shame, as we're coming to him saying, I can't cover this anymore. There's 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 nothing to hide, but will he accept me? The father runs to the son. He runs after him in all the things that he's ashamed of and feels disapproval for and feels he might be rejected because of. The God of the scriptures runs to us and through trust in him, we're safe because he covers our fear of man in the death of his son. Think of Christ in relation to the fear of man. Jesus never fell into the trap of the fear of man. God, his father, was always big in his eyes and people were always small. And he faced more scenarios than we can imagine where the fear of man might motivate us to act otherwise. In fact, much of why he was led to be crucified was driven by a fear of man. Pilate knew he was innocent, right? There's no guilt in this man. Even his wife had a dream and warned him, have nothing to do with this man. And yet for fear of the crowds, he gives Jesus over to be crucified. The Pharisees wanted him to be crucified because of fear of man. They feared Jesus taking away their authority, their power, their prestige, their position, whatever. So they gave him up to be crucified. Peter denies him out of fear of man. And Jesus experiences all of the things we fear about in the fear of man. He was despised, rejected, harmed at the cost of his life, crucified at the hands of lawless men precisely because he wouldn't fear other people. And why did he do this? He did this so that we who have often fallen into the trap of the fear of man could receive the only acceptance and approval that we could never earn but ultimately need, the acceptance and approval of our heavenly Father. When we see the bigness and grandness of the love of the Father displayed in the gospel through his Son, that's where we find the greatest remedy for the fear of man because the gospel teaches us and enables us to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who indeed is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So fill your heart with the love of the Father who has accepted and approved of us in his Son and there will be no room in your heart for the fear of man. Let's pray.